Volume 2, Chapter 37 of The Marble Fawn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Ferreira. The Marble Fawn by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Volume 2, Chapter 37 The Emptiness of Picture Galleries. Hilda descended day by day from her dovecote and went to one or another of the great old palaces, the Pamphili Doria, the Corsini, the Chiara, the Borghese, the Colonna, where the doorkeepers knew her well and offered her a kindly greeting. But they shook their heads and sighed on observing the languid step with which the poor girl toiled up the grand marble staircases. There was no more of that cheery alacrity with which she used to flit upward as if her doves had lent her their wings nor of that glow of happy spirits which had been wont to set the tarnished gilding of the picture frames and the shabby splendor of the furniture all aglimmer as she hastened to her congenial and delightful toil an old german artist whom she often met in the galleries once laid a paternal hand on hilda's head and bade her go back to her own country go back soon he said with kindly freedom and directness or you will go never more and if you go not why at least do you spend the whole summer time in rome the air has been breathed too often in so many thousand years, and is not wholesome for a little foreign flower like you, my child, a delicate wood anemone from the western forest land. I have no task nor duty anywhere but here, replied Hilda. The old masters will not set me free. Ah, those old masters, cried the veteran artist, shaking his head. They are a tyrannous race. You will find them of too mighty a spirit to be dealt with, for long together by the slender hand, the fragile mind and the delicate heart of a young girl. Remember that Raphael's genius wore out that divinest painter before half his life was lived. Since you feel his influence powerfully enough to reproduce his miracles so well, it will assuredly consume you like a flame. That might have been my peril once, answered Hilda. It is not so now. Yes, fair maiden, you stand in that peril now, insisted the kind old man. And he added, smiling, yet in a melancholy vein and with the German grotesqueness of idea, some fine morning I shall come to the Pinacotheca of the Vatican, with my palette and my brushes, and shall look for my little American artist that sees into the very heart of the grand pictures. And what shall I behold? A heap of white ashes on the marble floor, just in front of the divine Raphael's picture of the Madonna de Foligno. Nothing more, upon my word. The fire, which the poor child feels so fervently, will have gone into her innermost, and burnt her quite up. It would be a happy martyrdom, said Hilda, faintly smiling but I am far from being worthy of it. What troubles me much, among other troubles, is quite the reverse of what you think. The old masters hold me here, it is true, but they no longer warm me with their influence. It is not flame-consuming, but torpor-chilling me, that helps to make me wretched. Perchance, then, said the German, looking keenly at her, Raphael has a rival in your heart? He was your first love, but young maidens are not always constant, and one flame is sometimes extinguished by another. Hilda shook her head and turned away. She had spoken the truth, however, in alleging that torpor, rather than fire, was what she had to dread. In those gloomy days that had befallen her, it was a great additional calamity that she felt conscious of the present dimness of an insight which she once possessed in more than ordinary measure. She had lost, and she trembled lest it should have departed forever, the faculty of appreciating those great works of art which heretofore had made so large a portion of her happiness. It was no wonder. A picture, however admirable the painter's art and wonderful his power, requires of the spectator a surrender of himself, in due proportion with the miracle which has been wrought. 
Let the canvas glow as it may, you must look with the eye of faith, or its highest excellence escapes you. There is always the necessity of helping out the painter's art with your own resources of sensibility and imagination. Not that these qualities shall really add anything to what the master has effected, but they must be put so entirely under his control, and work along with him to such an extent, that, in a different mood, when you are cold and critical instead of sympathetic, you will be apt to fancy that the loftier merits of the picture were of your own dreaming, not of his creating. Like all revelations of the better life, the adequate perception of a great work of art demands a gifted simplicity of vision. In this, and in her self-surrender and the depth and tenderness of her sympathy, had lain Hilda's remarkable power as a copyist of the old masters. And now that her capacity of emotion was choked up with a horrible experience, it inevitably followed that she should seek in vain, among those friends so venerated and beloved, for the marvels which they had heretofore shown her. In spite of a reverence that lingered longer than her recognition, their poor worshipper became almost an infidel, and sometimes doubted whether the pictorial art be not altogether a delusion. For the first time in her life, Hilda now grew acquainted with that icy demon of weariness who haunts great picture galleries. He is a plausible Mephistopheles, and possesses the magic that is the destruction of all other magic. He annihilates color, warmth, and more especially, sentiment and passion at a touch. If he spare anything, it will be some such matter as an earthen pipkin, or a bunch of herrings by Teniers, a brass kettle in which you can see your rice by Gerard Dow, a furred robe or the silken texture of a mantle or a straw hat by Vron Miris, or a long-stalked wine-glass transparent and full of shifting reflection, or a bit of bread and cheese, or an overripe peach with a fly upon it, truer than reality itself by the school of Dutch conjurers. These men, and a few Flemings, whispers the wicked demon, were the only painters. The mighty Italian masters, as you deem them, were not human, nor addressed their work to human sympathies, but to a false intellectual taste, which they themselves were the first to create. Well might they call their doings art, for they substituted art instead of nature. Their fashion is past, and ought indeed to have died and been buried along with them. Then there is such a terrible lack of variety in their subjects. The churchmen, their great patrons, suggested most of their themes, and a dead mythology the rest. A quarter part, probably, of any large collection of pictures consists of virgins and infant Christs, repeated over and over again in pretty much an identical spirit, and generally with no more mixture of the divine than just enough to spoil them as representations of maternity and childhood, with which everyone's heart might have something to do. Half of the other pictures are Magdalens, flights into Egypt, crucifixions, depositions from the cross, pietas, noli metangris, or the sacrifice of Abraham, or martyrdoms of saints, originally painted as altarpieces, or for the shrines of chapels, and woefully lacking in the accompaniments which the artist haft in view. The remainder of the gallery comprises mythological subjects, such as nude venuses, lidas, graces, and in short, a general apotheosis of nudity, once fresh and rosy perhaps, but yellow and dingy in our day, and retaining only a traditionary charm. These impure pictures are from the same illustrious and impious hands that adventure to call before us the august form of apostles and saints, the blessed mother of the Redeemer and her son at his death, and in his glory, and even the awfulness of him to whom the martyrs, dead a thousand years ago, have not yet dared to raise their eyes. They seem to take up one task or the other with the disrobed woman whom they call Venus, or the type of highest and tenderest womanhood in the mother of their Saviour with equal readiness, but to achieve the former with far more satisfactory success. If an artist sometimes produced a picture of the Virgin, 
possessing warmth enough to excite devotional feelings. It was probably the object of his earthly love to whom he thus paid the stupendous and fearful homage of setting up her portrait to be worshipped, not figuratively as a mortal, but by religious souls in their earnest aspirations toward divinity. And who can trust the religious sentiment of Raphael or receive any of his virgins as heaven-descended likenesses, after seeing, for example, the fornarina of the Barberini Palace, and feeling how sensual the artist must have been to paint such a brazen trollop of his own accord and lovingly? Would the Blessed Mary reveal herself to his spiritual vision, and favor him with sittings alternately with that type of glowing earthliness, the fornarina? But no sooner have we given expression to this irreverent criticism, then a throng of spiritual faces look reproachfully upon us. We see cherubs by Raphael, whose baby innocence could only have been nursed in paradise. Angels by Raphael as innocent as they, but whose serene intelligence embraces both earthly and celestial things. Madonnas by Raphael, on whose lips he has impressed a holy and delicate reserve, implying sanctity on earth, and into whose soft eyes he has thrown a light which he could never have imagined, except by raising his own eyes with a pure aspiration heavenward. We remember, too, that divinest countenance in the transfiguration, and withdraw all that we have said. Poor Hilda, however, in her gloomiest moments, was never guilty of the high treason suggested in the above remarks against her beloved and honored Raphael. She had a faculty, which, fortunately for themselves, pure women often have, of ignoring all moral blotches in a character that won her admiration. She purified the objects of her regard by the mere act of turning such spotless eyes upon them. Hilda's despondency, nevertheless, while it dulled her perceptions in one respect, had deepened them in another. She saw beauty less vividly, but felt truth, or the lack of it, more profoundly. She began to suspect that some, at least, of her venerated painters, had left an inevitable hollowness in their works, because, in the most renowned of them, they essayed to express to the world what they had not in their own souls. They deified their light and wandering affections, and were continually playing off the tremendous jest, alluded to above, of offering the features of some venal beauty to be enshrined in the holiest places. A deficiency of earnestness and absolute truth is generally discoverable in Italian pictures, after the art had become consummate. When you demand what is deepest, these painters have not wherewithal to respond. They substituted a keen intellectual perception and a marvelous knack of external arrangement, instead of the live sympathy and sentiment which should have been their inspiration. And hence it happens that shallow and worldly men are among the best critics of their works. A taste for pictorial art is often no more than a polish upon the hard enamel of an artificial character. Hilda had lavished her whole heart upon it, and found, just as if she had lavished it upon a human idol, that the greater part was thrown away. For some of the earlier painters, however, she still retained much of her former reverence. For Angelico, she felt, must have breathed a humble aspiration between every two touches of his brush, in order to have made the finished picture such a visible prayer as we behold it, in the guise of a prim angel or a saint without the human nature. Through all these dusky centuries his works may still help a struggling heart to pray. Perugino was evidently a devout man, and the Virgin, therefore, revealed herself to him in loftier and sweeter faces of celestial womanhood, and yet with a kind of homeliness in their human mold than even the genius of Raphael could imagine. Sodoma, beyond a question, both prayed and wept while painting his fresco at Siena, of Christ bound to a pillar. In her present need and hunger for a spiritual revelation, Hilda felt a vast and weary longing to see this last-mentioned picture once again. It is inexpressibly touching. So weary is the Savior and utterly worn out with agony, that his lips have fallen apart from mere exhaustion. His eyes seem to be set. 
He tries to lean his head against the pillar, but is kept from sinking down upon the ground only by the cords that bind him. One of the most striking effects produced is the sense of loneliness. You behold Christ deserted both in heaven and earth. That despair is in him which wrung forth the saddest utterance man ever made. Why hast thou forsaken me? Even in this extremity, however, he is still divine. The great and reverent painter has not suffered the Son of God to be merely an object of pity, though depicting him in a state so profoundly pitiful. He is rescued from it, we know not how, by nothing less than miracle, by a celestial majesty and beauty, and some quality of which these are the outward garniture. He is as much and as visibly our Redeemer, there bound, there fainting and bleeding from the scourge, with a cross in view, as if he sat on his throne of glory in the heavens. Sodoma, in this matchless picture, has done more toward reconciling the incongruity of divine omnipotence and outraged, suffering humanity, combined in one person, than the theologians ever did. This hallowed work of genius shows what pictorial art, devoutly exercised, might affect in behalf of religious truth, involving, as it does, deeper mysteries of revelation, and bringing them closer to man's heart, and making him tenderer to be impressed by them, than the most eloquent words of preacher or prophet. It is not of pictures like the above that galleries in Rome or elsewhere are made up, but of productions immeasurably below them, and requiring to be appreciated by a very different frame of mind. Few amateurs are endowed with a tender susceptibility to the sentiment of a picture. They are not won from an evil life, nor anywise morally improved by it. The love of art, therefore, differs widely in its influence from the love of nature, whereas, if art had not strayed away from its legitimate paths and aims, it ought to soften and sweeten the lives of its worshippers, in even a more exquisite degree than the contemplation of natural objects. But of its own potency it has no such effect, and it fails, likewise, in that other test of its moral value, which poor Hilda was now involuntarily trying upon it. It cannot comfort the heart in affliction, it grows dim when the shadow is upon us. So the melancholy girl wandered through those long galleries, and over the mosaic pavements of vast solitary saloons, wondering what had become of the splendor that used to beam upon her from the walls. She grew sadly critical, and condemned almost everything that she was wont to admire. Heretofore her sympathy went deeply into a picture, yet seemed to leave a depth which it was inadequate to sound. Now, on the contrary, her perceptive faculty penetrated the canvas like a steel probe, and found but a crust of paint over an emptiness. Not that she gave up all art as worthless, only it had lost its consecration. One picture in ten thousand, perhaps, ought to live in the applause of mankind from generation to generation until the colors fade and blacken out sight or the canvas rot entirely away. For the rest, let them be piled in garrets, just as the tolerable poets are shelved when their little day is over. Is a painter more sacred than a poet? And as for these galleries of Roman palaces, they were to Hilda, though she still trod them with the forlorn hope of getting back her sympathies. They were drearier than the whitewashed walls of a prison corridor. If a magnificent palace were founded, as was generally the case, on hardened guilt and a stony conscience, if the prince or cardinal who stole the marble of his vast mansion from the Colosseum or some Roman temple had perpetrated still deadlier crimes, as probably he did, there could be no fitter punishment for his ghost than to wander perpetually through these long suites of rooms, over the cold marble or mosaic of the floors, growing chiller at every eternal footstep. Fancy the progenitor of the Dorias thus haunting those heavy halls where his posterity reside nor would it assuage his monotonous misery, but increase it manifold to be compelled to scrutinize those masterpieces of art, which he collected with so much cost and care, and gazing at them unintelligently, still leave the further portion of his vital warmth at every one. 
such or of a similar kind is the torment of those who seek to enjoy pictures in an uncongenial mood every haunter of picture galleries we should imagine must have experienced it in greater or less degree hilda never till now but now most bitterly and now for the first time in her lengthened absence comprising so many years of her young life she began to be acquainted with the exile's pain her pictorial imagination brought up vivid scenes of her native village with its great old elm trees and the neat comfortable houses scattered along the wide grassy margin of its street and the white meeting-house and her mother's very door and the stream of gold-brown water which her taste for color had kept flowing all this while through her remembrance o oh, dreary streets palaces churches and imperial sepulchres of hot and dusty rome with the muddy tiber eddying through the mist instead of the gold-brown rivulet how she pined under this crumbly magnificence as if it were piled all upon her human heart how she yearned for that native homeliness those familiar sights those faces which she had known always those days that never brought any strange event that life of sober weekdays and a solemn sabbath at the close the peculiar fragrance of a flower-bed which hilda used to cultivate came freshly to her memory across the windy sea and through the long years since the flowers had withered her heart grew faint at the hundred reminiscences that were awakened by that remembered smell of dead blossoms it was like opening a drawer where many things were laid away and every one of them scented with lavender and dried rose-leaves we ought not to betray hilda's secret but it is the truth that being so sad and so utterly alone and in such great need of sympathy her thoughts sometimes recurred to the sculptor had she met him now her heart indeed might not have been won but her confidence would have flown to him like a bird to its nest one summer afternoon especially hilda leaned upon the battlements of her tower and looked over rome towards the distant mountains whither kenyon had told her that he was going oh that he were here she sighed i perish under this terrible secret and he might help me to endure it oh that he were here that very afternoon as the reader may remember kenyon felt hilda's hand pulling at the silken cord that was connected with his heart-strings as he stood looking towards rome from the battlements of mont Beni. end of chapter thirty seven of volume two